This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Well, folks, welcome to Existential. Today on the podcast is William Matthews, um, somebody I just recently met via Twitter, but obviously like probably most of you had heard of. And as a black dude who did CCM worship stuff, um, I remember, uh, William, I remember seeing you and I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but back in those days when I was leading worship for mostly white churches, I felt like there wasn't a lot of me out there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when I saw you, I was like, wait, hold on. What a, wait a minute. Somebody else is out there doing this. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is William Matthews, folks. William, thanks for being being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, man, I appreciate you, bro. So, so let me ask you this, you know, off the top. Well, first of all, let, let's start here, actually. I mean, you know, we're recording this a day after Breonna Taylor's verdict. Um, and in that verdict, we found out that, um, you know, they charged one officer with wanton endangerment for basically shooting a hole in drywall. No one was charged for the murder of Breonna Taylor. Um, how have you processed that? Like, what's what's that felt like for you these last couple of days? Yeah, I, I saw that the indictment was coming. Um, I don't think I had any real expectation or hope, and I hate to say that because we should have hope. And, and actually, there was a lot of activism around her and her name, and, and folks really weren't letting it go. I think it was 194 days. Yeah. Folks were really protesting and, and, and really lifting her up and her story up, which just needed to happen. Um, looking at that attorney general, I, like months ago, I, I just knew, even though he was, uh, you know, even though he was a brother, I just, mm-hmm. I knew, mm-hmm. I said, this is, here's a, here's a black Republican who, you know, is, is going to look at it a certain way, who is going to uh, uh, take the facts and the evidence and, and only point to certain facts and leave out so many others. Yeah. Um, and then the, we all saw him at the Republican National Convention as well, <laughs> like mm-hmm. photo ops with Trump. Like we just knew where this, where this was going. And, and there's something to be said about, um, we always talk about voting as in terms of presidents, but there really is something to be said about voting for attorney generals, for prosecutors, people that really make commitments to the community that, that, that our lives matter. Mm. And, and it's clear. And I actually just came from Kentucky a couple of weeks ago and just mm-hmm. spending four or five days in Kentucky. It, it was clear to me what this state is, what it represents, the mindsets that, that are there when it comes to law enforcement. So yeah, this, this verdict wasn't a surprise for me. Um, I, I always get a little wary because as positive as the uproar and the activism was, I also knew, like so many of us, that it was setting us up for a disappointment. And especially mm-hmm. folks who don't engage in the process um, mm-hmm. and don't see how these cycles generally work out. Um, it's not wrong to to believe the best and want hope for the best. I'm not saying that. I actually think that that's – I would have loved – to there was always there's always a little bit of hope you know in mm-hmm. in my heart like maybe they'll get this one right maybe mm-hmm. they'll surprise mm-hmm. I actually would prefer to be surprised than disappointed yes, yes. um so I, I you ask me how I feel and that's such a tough question because I always say uh, I'm generally somebody that 
whatever happens to me, I feel it a week later. <laughs> so I'm like, ask me in a week how I feel, not what I think, what I feel. Because for those of you that are Enneagram nerds or whatever, like I'm Enneagram 5, I'm very much in my mind castle in my head. I notice okay. patterns. And uh, so when somebody says, how do you feel? I go, well, I think, <laughs> which is a general 5 thing. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I think first, and then I, then I maybe feel. <laughs> We've gone through so much pain that it's like, I have to I have to instantly move into the strategy first before I can actually allow myself to to grieve. But also, I, I also think just from the way my personality works, it's it's brilliant in one sense because uh, evil doesn't take a day off. Evil already knows the next move and the five steps after that. And so I think one of the things we have to do is become smarter about um, our grief. And actually learn to hold our grief in certain ways and move more strategically and think more in strategy because mm-hmm. they're being strategic. Evil does not have a day off. It doesn't rest. Evil knows how it's going to manipulate this, how they're going to play on your emotions, how they're going to play on black outrage, how they're going to spin it. And I think uh, we have to learn. We have the double burden of having to do both because clearly they don't care. So we have the double burden of doing both of of feeling because her life matters mm-hmm. that we have to feel it. And we also have to outsmart them. Yeah, bro. That's, gosh, that's a, I mean, you've said so many things I want to go back and grab. But the last yeah. thing you said made me think so much about strategy and about the resistance and the counter-resistance and the back and forth, the struggle against, against violence and injustice and oppression and the tactics that is, are used by the other side, evil not taking a day off while we as you know, advocates of peace and justice in the world that ought to be are like, well, you need a Sabbath, you need rest. So we hold those things in tension, right? So I, like that, that's to me, when I hear you say that, I'm like, it's such an interesting um, sort of, um, you know, dichotomy that we hold. Is that like, I have to hold that I do need rest. And like, I literally just tweeted today, black folks don't feel like you got to be productive today. Yeah, I saw that. And I actually thought, well, you better show up for this podcast. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'm not doing a podcast. I'm grieving today. But, like, I think that, okay. I think that, like, that, that both things are true, right? Like, we do need to be active, but we also need to rest. And, and I think that's mm-hmm. such an interesting thing you bring up, especially parsing it even down to personality, right? Because I'm, I'm a yep. seven. I, I think I feel first. And then feel last, and I can, mm. and I and I lean on the fives to give me a plan. Tell me what to do so I can get my feelings involved in that. You know what I mean? Yeah, because we see the world through patterns and possibilities as fives, so we're like outcomes. Like I don't know if you ever watched. I'm um, so I'm a big uh, uh, TV uh, guy. I like TVs more than media or movies. Excuse me. Um, but uh, I think of it like I don't know if you ever watched Sherlock Holmes on BBC, the BBC Sherlock Holmes. I did it. I, saw, I heard it was good. But I didn't watch it. It's one of the best like crime mystery shows I think ever produced. Wow. Um, it's psychological. It's I mean you got to watch it. It's, you know each BBC episode's an hour and a half. Shit, man. BBC they do. Stuff's amazing. And actually, yeah. they were ahead of their time in terms of how they filmed it. Like a lot of stuff people are doing now, they were doing five, six years ago. So they were kind of leading the way in terms of psychological thrillers. And you'll you'll see when you watch it because. Yeah, but, you know, Sherlock is always kind of, like, you know, deducing and, like, going through this, like, 
list of noticing patterns, right? And everyone's like, oh my God, somebody got killed. You know, and he's like <laughs> noticing all the stuff like, like, cause you don't have time. You know, it's like, this is a fresh murder. This is like, you know, mm-hmm. the evidence is here. We have to. And so I, I think in a lot of ways for us to catch up to the strategy, the Southern strategy has been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, everything we're seeing right now is the fruits of things laid and, and sown into the ground. Uh, I was speaking of that, um, Propaganda was just calling me. I have to call him back in a second. Um, uh, everything that we've been seeing uh, now has been the fruit of things that were going on in the 60s and the 70s as, in terms of the Southern strategy and, and the meshing of, of Republican identity and Christian identity and the, and the real like grassroots work on the conservative side um, to, to make the law work a certain way, look a certain way. Yeah, it was built from the, the founding, but the civil rights movement actually created a real opening for progress and we made some progress, but the backlash against school integration, the backlash against the Voting Rights Act uh, is all very, very, very real. And, and a lot of us haven't been playing that long game. And, and many of these folks have been playing a long game. And so what we have to do is we're playing catch up. Doesn't mean we can't, <clears throat> doesn't mean we can't um, score some victories and win, but we also have to know that we have to have a long game. We yeah, have sure. to have, you know, uh, longer than getting Trump out of office. So for sure, that's, that's I think that's step one. But now, now the last thing you just said is interesting because I don't think you could have engaged in this kind of dialogue as an employee of Bethel. Uh, and that, that's just me, you know, taking a stab in the dark. You know what I'm so what has changed for, between like today and your Bethel days? Like what, what is, what is that metamorphosis been like? Or was it not a metamorphosis? Were, were you just like, I was this dude. I just, I couldn't be it. I couldn't explore it. I couldn't express it because I was working for white evangelicals. Well, <clears throat> I've definitely had, I think I've had more of a political evolution than a moral evolution. Um, I would love for fact checkers to fact me on that. <laughs> you know, sometimes I actually think I was worse in my head, and then I go back and look at certain things. I was like, no, you weren't actually that bad. Um, and when I, when I say that was, I got co-opted early on into the pro-life movement, long before I ever showed up at Bethel. I was doing um, pro-life activism on the Supreme Court back in 2004. Um, when I was just, you know, 21, 22 years old, I'm 36 now. And so I was doing like red tape on our mouths with the words life written on it. I was really working with Lou Engle and the justice house of prayer. A lot of people know it as the call or the send or they've changed so many things. I don't know. Um, now our friend Andre Henry's calling me, man. It's like every black person wants to talk to me when Corey wants to record a podcast. You know, we should we should have invited him all to the podcast. That's what we I know, done. right? He called, he called me earlier, and, and then he had to go, and then he, he's calling me back. Uh, you know, he's working on. Are you going to be at his? You don't live in LA. I'm sorry. He's doing a music video. So yeah, I'm, um, sure he's, there. I'm telling him right now on on the call with your friend Corey. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. Part of my history, truthfully, has been in conservative spaces. I did vote. I've said this on our Liturgist podcast. I did vote Republican in 2008 and 2012. Mm -hmm. I voted for John McCain, and I voted for Mitt Romney. I have no problem saying that because that's just where I was. Mm -hmm. And and part of that wasn't a a hatred of Obama. I was never in the the camp of Obama's the worst thing that's going to happen to America. I was in the camp Obama's pro-life. Excuse me, Obama's pro-choice. Yeah. I'm pro-life. Yeah. Pro-life is a big issue for me. 
Um, and, and so I have to, I, I want to vote this way. And also I, I really, you know, part of the manipulation of all that was we were like forced to make vows. <laughs> like we wore red, a red rubber band on our arm. That was like, I vow never to vote for a pro choice candidate my entire life. Like we took wow. literal vows. And so in 20, 2008, when I voted for Barack Obama, um, and then he won, I was like, okay. Part of that though, was during that time, my grandfather, um, I would say maybe between 20, 2008 and, and 12, my grandfather called me and maybe not long before he passed. And he was like, you voting for Obama? And I was like, uh, I don't know, you know, and just <laughs> whatever. And, and when I tell you my grandfather went in on me <laughs> and I was like, man, this guy's getting old anyway. Like he's just, you know, he's like, I heard from glory. The Lord says it's Obama. We got to vote. And I was just, he said, I heard from glory. <laughs> I heard it on the, that's like, you know, my grandfather was a missionary, a, a preacher. So, you know, and he so heard from like, Jesus on the main line. He heard, he heard. it from, yeah. he did. And, yeah. you know, I kind of mocked him for it. Uh, but truthfully, and that was honestly one of the last like longer conversations I ever had with him on the phone and now i look back and just go man that man was so wise he was mm. so wise mm. you know the the ancestors know and mm. and i even at that time one of my aunts you know told me she said hey she was super safe but she was like be careful with with them white folks and that pro-life stuff like <laughs> they, they're not really in it for the pro-life thing like she told mm. me early on and i was just like mm. no you know you guys just don't understand you know this is youth movement and we're trying to blah 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 so long story short um after, in 2008 when he won. I was like, okay, that's fine. 2012, I was like, you know, I really do like Barack Obama. I really want to vote for Barack Obama. But here I had made this vow that I couldn't, you know, so I really wrestled with this internal moral commitment for me. Um, and I was like, I want to vote. I want to vote, you know, but I, I do feel like I need to honor my vow. And so in 2012, I voted for Mitt Romney. But truthfully, I didn't actually see a ton of difference, intellectually speaking, between Mitt Romney. I feel like Mitt just kind of repitched Barack Obama's policies just with a different face. <laughs> no, I mean, they, there were many issues. Like, I watched those debates. I'm like, they were not that far off, you know, in right, a lot right. of ways. Right. Um, you know, Romney care, right. you know, was not far off from Obamacare. Like, right. So, right. and that's not an, an indictment on Obama. That's actually, that, to me, that, that speaks positively for the conservative movement that they at least yeah. had people that were compassionate con conservatives yeah. that believed in fairness and, and, and what was right and justice. And so, but after that Mitt Romney loss, I really transitioned because I, I felt like I was watching Fox news a lot and I started to see the tent of where it was headed and the GOP tent. And I saw the racism and even for me being in conservative evangelical settings, it was, it was like, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. Like, I, I honestly feel like I lived in that, we call it an echo chamber now at the time, you know, it's just a community or a bubble maybe. But I, I understand where a lot of conservatives are coming from in their frustrations and their fears and their, uh, you know, opinions on government. And and not a lot of it's bad in, in its core, you know, arguments. The problem became uh, there's, there's a blind spot to white supremacy. And that blind spot is driving so much of their their angst and their 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 culture wars that it's it's it's. I even had a black Republican tell me recently, I won't say who, but who called me up and, and said, "This is he." He was like, "I'm a conservative," but he was like, "My party has been given over to white grievance," and mm -hmm. that was his language. And so, yeah, I will say this, and I feel like this. I'm answering the question way long, giving way more context. No, it's fine. Edit me out. No. But um, <laughs> I grew up very pro-black, 
but I also grew up in in white containers, meaning my mm-hmm. my first through third grade experience was at a white AG private school in Detroit called Fairlane Christian, where I'm, I'm talking about assemblies of God, y'all. <laughs> I, I, it was during the first desert storm. Remember when uh, Bush sent the troops over the first Bush, not the second. That's how old yeah. I am. Um, and we would have rallies at the at the uh, school gymnasium where we were like singing, "Our God is an awesome God," chanting mm-hmm. it, and then there's like pictures of or there's like balloons of the american flag like big you know balloons with all the red white and blues and then a, and a rotc army recruitment guy comes through and talks at our christian chapel and so the real i've been in situations where i'm like as a little boy i'm being inundated with christian nationalism yeah I, you know Same. Same. so to go from that but then through third, third through fifth grade, I went to one of the most pro-black magnet schools in Detroit, where all my teachers were black, where they taught black history, African history. We grew up reciting poems from the Harlan Renaissance and Langston Hughes. Um, we, we, our school plays or uh, were speeches from kings and queens of Africa, um, very much. Uh, pro 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 black before pro black was cool <laughs> you know um, even dope. from yeah even for my family it was like they they just did the reverse they were like all right we, we put you in here we need we need to put you in something more black i was already going to a black church with black family but like being immersed in the beautifulness of black people i feel like i've always had both so to answer your question fast forward later on to being in white evangelical circles, it was easy for me to be in those circles because, again, that was part of my childhood. I grew up in those spaces. I understood them. But also, I I never, I I never, we all have had anti-racist ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Excuse me. We all have had racist ideas Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and have had to grow. So I definitely had to do my growing. But at my core, I never hated black people. And long-term, being a Republican or being you know, associated with people who were mostly conservatives. It honestly felt like over time I had to have this group think about black people or that something was inherently wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And over time, I would say that was happening well into my years when I was living in Reading and, and working on staff at that church was very much re- wrestling with, hey, I'm conservative too, but I, I'm not, I don't hate black people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. there was that, you know, there was a real uh, reckoning for me, but it wasn't like, there wasn't an overnight transition. I was that guy that, there then. Yeah. And I was like, hey, I don't think Barack Obama was born in Kenya, y'all. <laughs> 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 and that was just to like any of my white friends, right? Like that, yeah. that was just, it, it was just such a common rumor. That, you know, sorry, which I know your grandfather emailed you a picture of, you know, but that doesn't mean, you know, and I know Donald Trump saying this on Twitter early on. I watched as people loved the, the shit he said on Twitter uh, early on. People flocked to it. And I was like, uh. yeah. so I, yeah. I always had like, so when you saw me, you know, I would know that I, I was definitely. Um, there was some Kool-Aid I was drinking, but re- in the mass majority of it, I, I was very much like. Uh, something feels off. Yeah, I mean, and and you and you got out, man, and you left it. And I mean, it's and I did this. I did the same. I mean, I think um, you know, uh, it's no secret. People know I was fired. You know what I'm saying? But like, I think it was it, it was. I almost fired myself. I was watching a video myself from three years ago, and the stuff I was saying was like, 
Oh yeah, no wonder. No wonder I don't work there anymore. There's no. There's no way I could have stayed there and and talking and, and being the way that I'm being. What what I'm what I really um, think is amazing that you're working on right now. You just released a uh, documentary, uh, or well, short film. I mean, are you calling it a documentary or a short film? What do you what do you, what do you, what do you call? It? I want I want to respect. Short, I want to respect your hustle. It's a short documentary film. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called We Don't Give Up, and I watched it yesterday. And it's so well done, first of all, just like the, the cinematography, Thank you. Um, just how you guys shot things and put things together is so wonderful. Um, I mean, so so you start talking about in the film settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. And this is I love when things are named so that we can like ac- access them and know, oh, OK, that's what that thing is. So could you just unpack a little bit of, of that whole idea that sort of runs throughout the entire film. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to do the, exactly what you said. I wanted to name it because far too often when we talk about, um, and just to give people a context of what we're talking about, we're talking about um, an indigenous group that lives in Northern Alaska, whose land is under threat by the federal government um, for oil drilling. The, the Trump administration snuck a a provision in the 2017 tax bill that allowed for the Arctic Refuge. Now, a lot of people may maybe not know what the Arctic Refuge is, but it's one of the last great wildernesses in North America. It's There's been lots of legal fights around it for, for decades, but it's generally been protected, and they won a lot of those fights until recently. And the problem is it's not just oil drilling, which already in and of itself is just... Uh, uh, it's a, it, it's a sanctuary. It's a holy sanctuary mm. for nature and for, honestly, I, as a Christian, I would honestly say for God. It's mm. God's dwelling place. When I went to the refuge, I was like, this is God's dwelling place. Mm. Um, untouched by man, it is, it is flourishing. And there's, there's a herd of caribou who live there that the Gwich'in people, which is the, the, the indigenous uh, group that I'm talking about, they have been hunting the caribou for thousands of years on this land in the in the coastal plain on the refuge. And so now oil drilling, what it will do is it will disturb the natural ecosystem, which will force the herd to move on. And if the herd moves on, the Gwich'in no longer have a food source because, again, they're so far removed from the rest of, like, Mm. What we would what we would call modern civilization, right, yeah. or cities, yeah. that yeah. They, this is their only primary food source, um, and we are literally finishing the job of, of settler colonialism by mm. denying the Gwich'ins food sovereignty and their ability to secure their own food. Um, just because we don't hunt for our food, that doesn't mean that other people right. don't, right. and. Right. And that and that's a big deal. So so yeah, settler colonialism. I wanted to name it because I didn't want to pussyfoot around it. Uh, I don't, sorry, that's a word from Sherlock Holmes. I just brought that. <laughs> such a random <laughs> pussyfoot. I have, like, I have no problems with it. Okay, in context, it works. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does. I've never known what it meant, but I have no problem with it at all. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's kind of like it's speaking more of cats. <laughs> you know, like the intrepidation <laughs> that cats kind of sometimes walk around. That's actually what that. Yeah, that's I've what been, that is. Okay, I've been got you. With BBC. Cats. <laughs> okay, it makes more sense to me in that context because yes, the yes, other yes. context that may some people may be thinking doesn't make any sense at all you know no um in the, in the era of wop it doesn't make a, yeah. yeah it's you know it's like when people used to use the word gay and it was actually just meant cheer <laughs> you know let's have a gay old 
all time. The straightest people. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's ridiculous, but that's, I mean, we're changing with time. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a man lost in time sometimes. Yeah. But um, yeah. I wanted to name settler colonialism. I didn't want to mince words about it. I wanted to, the phrase I use in the doc is, uh, uh, so white supremacy, also known as settler colonialism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, was, yeah. That was the dagger to the heart for me, you know, because it was like, I want you to connect white supremacy to the forced removal of indigenous people off their lands. Mm. I, you have to connect that. If you're not mm. connecting that, then what you're doing is you're coming up with another reason. You're justifying the reason why we deserve this, they don't. We deserve this land. We deserve this this uh, access to this. This is ours now, um, and 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 that at the core is what's going on. And it's funny because talking to the Gwich'in, you know, they see it. They use the language to us as primarily like the federal government. It's America, mm-hmm. and and as a black person, I wanted to link our struggles together and say, yeah, this is also a byproduct of white supremacy and and going through their town and and hearing the stories um, from their village elders their story is colonialization they're talking about the french people coming you know and and for trapping and you know for the fish and and pretty much colonizing them and giving them christianity yeah, and bro. and they're all Methodist. Yeah, dude, dude. <laughs> they have this church up there. <laughs> it's like what? It's, it, you you talk to this dude on in the in the uh, film um, named Kelvin Tritt. Yeah. Um, and he uh, this was one of my favorite parts. And I don't want to give I, I don't want to give people on the podcast a Cliff Notes version of the, of the film. I want you to go watch the film because you need to go watch the film. Um, he said we've been fighting terrorism since 1492, and we're pretty damn good at it. And I thought that was such an amazing line from him. But then also uh, in that section of the film, you talked about him being angry, at, at even angry at you, and, 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 and you guys that were there doing the film. What did you feel in the room with him? Like when you were sitting with this, this, this witching uh, elder who was talking about his history and his life experience, what did you feel in that space? I know you think first, so maybe I should ask yeah. you what you think. Uh, you know, well, five, I'll ask you the five question. What did you think? Me- let me let me tell you for that man was so angry i felt first <laughs> it was so tangible that it almost kind of it froze me at times because you know we just show up and you know we're like setting up a nice camera and we're like getting the lighting right testing the sound miking him up doing the whole thing and he's just kind of like chill and then when we press record <laughs> this man laid into us and yeah. and raged at us now not like batch right. crazy but yeah, like yeah, yeah. he he was forceful mm-hmm. in his condemnation of mm-hmm. what was happening in that room <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and and what mm-hmm. it represents to their their fight for liberation so what i felt was i asked the first question something about i can't even it was something like so you know tell us the history of your tribe you know and when i tell you that man turned at me <laughs> <laughs> and was like how dare you like it was there was a there was a grievance and a mm. and a real offense to that, and I remember my body just went numb. And and mm. my cinematographer Christian Atkins, who's who's wonderful, a black guy by the way too. Christian's like looking at me like interject, interject, and I was like, no, <laughs> that's all I, could. I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. 
I'm gonna let the, this man need to. He just need to get this off his chest for sure. You know, yeah. and then eventually it kind of moved where you know he really was talking to the white people that I was there with, and then I just kind of was looking like, mm-hmm, yeah, y'all deserve <laughs> y'all deserve to get dragged right now. Yep, yep. How dare y'all come here and disturb us <laughs> in our habitat? <laughs> Very much like dragon Porsche, dragon. <laughs> was just yeah. He and once he got that off his chest, he, it was just like it was like he just got a lot of it off his chest, and then he just began to talk. And then he wanted to share his history, but it was like you're not gonna just prime me for like who I am without hearing how I feel about all. Dude, oh my god, I love it, and and that's why I think I love. I think that's my favorite part that you left that in. You know what I'm saying? That like you did because people oftentimes, I say this all the time, and it's not even like it's unique to me, but we're all the protagonists in our own story. So especially you're doing a doc, you're doing a, a, a film, you're going there to, uh, you know, for virtuous reasons, and you want to point out the inequities that are happening that you're not, you're not necessarily going there to say, this is what I'm doing. You're going there to say, this is what our government's doing. But to to leave in there a portion where someone says, actually, you are also complicit yep. in this, to me, he, was just so, so strong. He said... Make sure you thank yourselves when you go home. You yeah. destroyed a beautiful people. You destroyed the land. Make sure you thank yourself when you go home. That's what mm. that man told us. That's what mm. he told us. And because for the Gwich'in, and, and I think indigenous people have this value in general, they don't see that separation that we do with land. They see themselves as part of the land, as part of the natural world. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, they see such a, a fluidity of identity of who I am to who this place is. Mm-hmm. And, and for them, it's ancestral. It's, you know, 35 generations plus. It's ancestral. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's sacred and it's holy. So, so for us to come in with a, um, such an abstracted view of here's who these people are, here's what's being done to them, and here's how we can... All of that, I mean, yes, it can be helpful, but it, it doesn't speak to the violence, the spiritual violence that's being committed against the Gwich'in and, and their identity and their identity being so connected to the land. Like we have identity fights in this country. Like we're, we're in a part of our culture war is about identity and about what is the nature of family and, and mm-hmm. identity and orientation and what's appropriate and not appropriate, right? We're, we're not even beginning to scratch the surface of our interconnectivity with the world around us. We're not even scratching this. We think we're being provocative and progressive um, when we simply say we're queer affirming or something. You know, like when we right. simply say that, you know, yeah, we that do the gender may be fluid. We are doing such the bare minimum. Indigenous folks had had language and had spaces for people who didn't conform to, to, to an either-or gender binary. Many of them have, I mean, the, the, there's a phrase that's cropped up. It's not a universal phrase, but the idea is universal, it seems to be, in indigenous culture, which is two-spirited people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there were special, you know, there, there was designations for, for many of those folks. Many of them were the bridge builders between the male and the female, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, we know it's true because the colonizers, when they came over, they wrote about it. And they wrote about how disgusting they thought it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so when we are having these, you know, certain conversations over here in America, we're not even scratching the surface to our our own identities, and our interconnectivity that is is fundamentally a part of the natural world. Like we are a part of that land. So he he says in the doc, Kelvin says it's not just about the caribou; it's about the whole world. When yeah. you do, 
and the ripple effect that creates when you move this herd that naturally grazes here, right, and sends it over there, what that does to the ecosystem of this world, it's it's violence. And that they see like it as violence. Yeah, that felt like a huge part of it, too. I saw you setting up a tent. And I'm like, black people don't set up tents outside. <laughs> you, you're not, it's not even your backyard. It's just some random place you set up tents. But it felt like a real part of the story, like you just mentioned, this that they don't have a separation, nor should we, yep. from the land and us and God and the whole thing is bound together and created together, built together. We're made from dust. We go back to dust. That all of that is like so important and should be a part of our spiritual language or spiritual community. Like you um, have become really, really passionate about climate change. Like, has that always been a part of you? Is that something? Is that newer? Is that something you've discovered as you've just read or learned or grown or experienced things? Where did they come from? I think my my original passion for the 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 issue of climate change really came from the scriptures. I think I'd always, as a child, wrestled with who I am and my place in the world, and 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 what am I supposed to do, and what is my contribution. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a black household that you know rewarded achievement. So you know, I want to be a high achiever, and and that's kind of how my parents instilled that in us, and so. I want to achieve, I want to, I want to do well in the world. And, and truthfully, scripture was kind of a part of that for our family too. Like mm-hmm. how to be a good Christian, how to like mm-hmm. love your neighbor. Well, right. But the, the black church taught me that. And so I began to really go on a theological journey, pretty much my, I would say my entire adult life, probably starting when I was 14, 15, but really um, most of my adult life, I had been going on a theological journey through the scripture, through various movements that were, was a part of that carried a piece for me. When I went to this place, you know, I, I learned this one thing. When I went to this place, I learned this one thing. And, and what it all actually led me to was a recognition that God is to be found in the natural world. Mm. And so much of our theology has abstracted God to somewhere else apart from us that we pray to a God somewhere else, even some of the language of the Bible, which is beautiful, right? Like that we, we work, that we have a God who sees and hears, right? Mm-hmm. But, but even that to a level connotates a level of, of separation, right. that, that he's over there listening and hearing and I'm over here praying. Mm-hmm. When actually, you know, God is not only within us, but it, God is around us. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus representing uh, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into the world as a vulnerable human baby, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and really, uh, transitioning my theology into an incarnational theology mm-hmm. that really says that God is becoming in the world, that God mm-hmm. is enfolding and enfleshing him, herself, they self mm-hmm. into the natural world. Mm-hmm. And that's what, to me, that, that story really represents, um, that, that journey for me started with reading Madeline Ankle years ago, and she talked about the incarnational worldview. And, and so for me, wanting to change the world and wanting to like do what's right and, and be a force for good. I had to recognize uh, where was God in all the suffering and the pain and the evil. Mm-hmm. And when I did, I began to realize that God was at work in the world, reconciling himself to it. And mm-hmm. Corinthians five says, and, and so that incarnational worldview actually allowed me to see that what we do to the planet is what yeah. we do to God. Yeah. What we yeah. do to the marginalized and the oppressed is what mm-hmm. we do to God. Mm-hmm. What I do to harm myself is what I do to God. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. those connections really cemented for me, like I would say 
firmly, firmly, uh, maybe six, seven years ago, seven, eight years ago. And, and because the climate change issue is, is not just about um, um, carbon and, and, and global warming and sea level rise. At, at its core, it's a theological issue about our lack of stewardship of the planet. 100%. And our sure. inability to own our impact on the natural world. And that's yeah. sin. That's yeah. sin. That, I mean, dude... Yeah, dude. I mean, we see you gave you gave me a whole other hours worth of, of stuff that I could go on and talk about with you when you mentioned that stuff because it's such a it's such a rich commentary on what faith should be, what you just what you just laid out because it it makes clear the difference between a worldview that says what happens here doesn't matter because I'm going to another place, this mm-hmm. separation of God's divine divine space versus our space, and so doesn't really matter what I do here as long as I read my Bible and pray and listen to, you know, dance in the river. You're going to shame me like that? <laughs> as long as I do those things, I'm good. But, like, when you describe uh, sin, missing the mark, um, disrupting shalom in the mm-hmm. context of what I do, how I live, how I treat the planet, how I treat my neighbor, that matters. And I think that's just so, so rich, man. I, I so appreciate you sharing that. One last thing I'll ask you about, because you said you told me off, off, off air, you guys know how much I hate saying off air, but you told me off air that like you spent a year on this, on this, on this uh, docu-series or this, this uh, documentary short film. What would you say that year, if you could sum it up into like, this is how it changed me. This is what, this is what that experience introduced me to. How would you sum that up? The film really became a tether for me, especially during the middle of a global pandemic. Mm. Um, Last fall, we we shot this in August 2019, started kind of like looking at the footage, you know, by like October um, and, and figuring out what to really do. Initially, we were going to release it before Christmas, and then obviously it just wasn't a good idea. It wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and having to sit with the film and to really listen to it, because the first version of the film is very different from the last version. So I had to find my voice. Mm. I had to find the, the story that I really wanted to tell. Mm. And the film became my tether because in so much global uncertainty, and panic, and existential crisis. And we have been living with that with climate change and, and understanding that data for a while. So that that dread was already there. And then to hit a global pandemic in the middle of it felt like I could have lost myself um, in, in despair. And so the film was a tether for me to remind me that regardless of what happens in the world, we don't give up. Because our ancestors didn't give up. Mm. And they resisted. And even Jesus resisted, even unto death. You know, like his resistance was the sacrifice. Like he gave up his life for that. And so for me, I felt like I entered into another level of Christ solidarity, not in some like pious, you know, like I'm close to Christ. Because (laughs) the thing is, being close to Christ actually means you have to forsake your mother and your father. 
It means you have, it means you're in the garden, uh, sweating blood, <laughs> you know, you're tearing, you're praying, you're, you're holding space. You're, you're giving birth to a new world. Mm-hmm. And with so much happening in our world that feels like it's falling apart, I really had to hold myself with this film to the promise of a new world that, mm-hmm. that we as co-creators with Christ get to build a new world. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's rich, man. Thanks so much for, for working. First of all, for working existential into the comments you just made. I mean, that's just, you know, You're welcome. <laughs> well, dude, thanks for coming on, man. I so appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm going to make sure that, that a link to the film and, and your Twitter and everything else is in, in the you know, show notes of this podcast so people can stay in touch with you, man. I, I so appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. And download uh, my album, Cosmos, because my album, Cosmos, is literally all about this. It's all sure. about my place in the world and, and figuring that that journey out, especially if you feel lost in the existential crisis of it all. Dope, dope. Well, dude, make sure to tell uh, Andre hello for us and Propaganda. He's always welcome to come by the show if he ever wants to. So when, when you get off with us and, and make those phone calls, make sure you let them know. That all right. I said, what's up? Folks, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to William for coming on the podcast. I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song you're listening to is called Sorry. I'd like to thank all of you who are part of the Patreon community. We so appreciate you. Uh, please make sure you rate and review the podcast if you've not already. And thank you for uh, helping us to continue for a better world, one conversation at a time. Thank you.